Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What happens if it kind of tumbles over into something that's not acute? It kind of hangs around and, you know, falls below the radar. You don't get those classic signs of inflammation. You don't have the redness and swelling and Mm. heat. You haven't got a fever 24-7. Yeah. But there's something smouldering below the surface. Mm. And that this is what we call chronic inflammation. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we're going to be discussing the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. We're going to be blending together the science with delicious recipes inspired by cuisines from across the world, as well as the topics that you're most fascinated by and me as well. Today, we've got Dr. Jenna Machoki back on the podcast to talk about eating for inflammation. Now, you might wonder why I've got an immunologist coming in to talk about inflammation. That will become very clear once we get into the conversation. She holds a PhD from the Faculty of Inflammation Repair and Development at Imperial College. She's a lecturer in immunology at the University of Sussex who uses rigorous scientific research with concepts both old and new, holistic and conventional, to cultivate long-term health and well-being. She's brilliant. If you haven't listened to the first podcast that she was on, Eating for Immunity, I highly, highly recommend you do. We go into a little bit about her background, where she's from, and how she's come to this understanding of food, lifestyle, blended with the science, and why it's so important for the health and well-being of our population. As well as being editor at the Scientific Journal Annals of Advanced Biomedical Sciences, she's a mother of twins and trained as a fitness instructor. In today's podcast, we talk about inflammation as a concept, why it's becoming so popular in the medical literature, and why it's so relevant to a host of different medical specialties. Also, don't forget my new book, Eat to Be Illness, is going to be out on the 21st of March. You can pre-order on Amazon and all good bookstores as well. Listen right to the end where I summarize our talk and give you some actionable tips, as well as the show notes and where you can find Dr. Jenna. Let's crack on with the podcast. Jenna. 
Hi. Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks for having me. No worries. I mean, the response from our last podcast, and if you listeners haven't listened to the last podcast, definitely, definitely listen to it. It's in two parts on eating for immunity. Honestly, I had one of the biggest responses. Um, the number of people it's helped, the number of people it's clarified information for, Super. the way they see immune uh, the immunity and how mm-hmm. it works, it literally works. Um, they were very, very thankful for it. So oh, super. Yeah, it was really nice, really nice to get so much good feedback. And even some students saying, I've been studying this as part of my degree and it was really? quite helpful to oh, so untangle, you know, some of the things. <laughs> so, yeah, super. Yeah. Cool. If it's helping, like, university yeah. students, then, yeah, we're doing a good thing. <laughs> it's a complicated field. So, yeah, it's probably a good kind of overview. So, yeah, if anyone's not listened to that one it might be a good idea to give a bit of context for today definitely yeah because we go into a bit of your background how yeah. you grew up what you yeah. were eating <laughs> you know your family ties and all yeah. that kind of stuff um but yeah so to, today we're going to go into inflammation as a concept mm-hmm. and why it's becoming so popular in the medical literature yeah. it's almost become like this unifying theory that ties lots of different lifestyle related illnesses yes. like hypertension diabetes obesity um, but I think a lot of people are going to be confused as to why I've got an immunologist talking yeah. about inflammation so why don't we clarify what we mean and why you're here in the yeah. hot seat again <laughs> <laughs> back in the hot seat yeah, yeah so immunology is the study of every bit of the immune system and inflammation is a component of the immune system so I guess that's why it has a good fit with me but the nice thing about the immune system is it kind of infiltrates into every aspect of our health and disease but inflammation itself is um, it's it's not a single phenomenon it's a real kind of complex uh, response that actually keeps us well and protects us from infection so it's essential it's really essential that we can mount an inflammatory response and um, defend ourselves. You know, I mentioned last time we live in this real microbial world. Mm. All the time, these germs are trying to infect us. We're trying to um, evade them. There's this dynamic relationship that's always going on and inflammation is one of our weapons against them. Yeah. You know, the analogy I like to use um, just from the get-go is that what we used to think about microbes about 30 years ago is all being bad for us definitely it's almost like how we view inflammation today like any sort of inflammation is bad for us but as you just explained you know there are huge benefits to having inflammation yeah and why it's a very important process when it comes to cell signaling when it comes to uh, host defense and a whole bunch of other uh, yeah exactly it's really important and we don't want to totally extinguish it and obviously with it being a bit of a buzzword at the moment it would sound like we have you know there's anti-inflammatory diets anti-inflammatory lifestyles we want to get rid of inflammation but we don't actually the the point to make i think is that it's it's acute by design so a lot of things in in um biology are you know the form follows the function so it's a short-term assault Mm. it's only ever meant to be short-term this sort of short-term adaptive response yes yeah exactly to Mm. get to like a means to an end really and it's supposed to cause damage because it's trying to remove something that might cause even greater damage to us so it's trying to get rid of an infection if anyone's ever been sick um or you know if you cut your finger and you get you know some some bacteria in there you're going to um, have a lot of damage to your own tissue. And that's mostly your immune system mounting a response, an inflammatory response to get rid of those um, pathogens, mm. uh, those germs that have got into your tissue. So that 
you know, leads me to, I think, one of the most important points is that there's some collateral damage that comes with mounting an inflammatory response. It's trying to get rid of something that's going to cause you damage. And as a collateral, you incur a little bit of damage yourself because it's a toxic process. Mm. I think it's also important to mention that it's, it's, it's a complete cycle. So people think about inflammation being switched on. Mm. But it actually has a beginning, a middle and an end. And that end is actually quite important. That's the resolution. That mm. act, It's an active process that brings it all to a close. And it's involved in healing and repair and getting us back to like a normal state. That's a really good point because I think a lot of people think of inflammation in binary terms. Like yes. You either have inflammation or you do not have inflammation. Yes. Yeah. And actually it's kind of like a story. Like yeah, you said, like, exactly. Yeah, it's a cyclic a process. Yeah. And each one of those parts to the inflammatory process triggers the next part. And so it's a kind of very delicately orchestrated process that mm. one will lead to the next, will lead to the next. Mm. The design of it, and when you're following, I, I remember doing this at medical school and absolutely hating immunology. Like I found <laughs> it so just, it just wasn't intuitive to me. Yeah. It wasn't until like I actually had some clinical experience on the wards, yeah. witnessing what inflammation does and how it's related yeah. to a whole bunch of different things, and then going back to the science, like ah, I get it now. Yeah. Like this is what's happening at this particular point in yes. this patient's journey. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting, isn't it? Because I, I struggle with the, when I'm teaching immunology to the the very beginning to bring it to life because they really just have to learn all these um, complicated pathways uh, in fact this last week I was teaching them complement the complement system oh my god yeah and they were just, I was like you're all going to hate me it's just the beginning of term it gets better honestly but you know when it comes to life it's it's that's when the beauty and the sort of art of immunology I think comes alive I can imagine you being a very popular lecturer because you do bring it to life I can imagine you're like okay this is complement but and this is why it's related to a particular yeah condition or yeah. yeah well one of the things i actually just totally going on a tangent yeah. <laughs> um the complement system is this really complicated cascade in the immune system it's part of the inflammatory response mm. really but it also weeds out the the connections in our brain that we don't need anymore so when we're growing uh, as a child and we're making all these different neuronal connections the complement system is part of the way that we remove the ones we don't need and strengthen the ones we do need so oh, wow. it's really cool and it's it's been implicated in Alzheimer's disease. I so. haven't come across that. You yeah. must send me that. <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah, check yeah. it out and send yeah. you the details. So, like, it, it becomes this dull pathway that I'm teaching students, but then you're like, it's so relevant. Yeah. You know, and this is why you need to know this. So, I think half the time they're just humoring me because I'm jumping about the, the lecture theater. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, the one uh, yesterday when I was teaching, yeah. they, they'd been sitting in the same lecture theater for three hours and I had them at the, the last hour. The graveyard shift. Immediately yeah. got them to all start running around the room and squatting and jumping. Really? And, because I was like, you have to move. You've been sitting in this room and it's hot and you're all going to be half asleep in the hour. Yeah. Crazy, oh, that's great. No, it's really good. I mean, like we know that there's uh, uh, mitochondrial biogenesis when you when you start moving, yeah, you start doing like some hip training and stuff, exactly. so that will feed their brains literally. Yeah. Like. So yeah, they think I'm mad. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it takes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, inflammation is is our warfare. It's mm. part of what the immune system's using to to get rid of things that might hurt us. It causes us a little bit of damage on the sideline, but it's okay because it's short term it's only ever meant to be acute part of the reason it damages us is because it uses a lot of oxidative stress to mm. to cause damage to the thing that's that's infecting you or 
trying to cause you damage. And I think that's where we think about antioxidants yeah. and sort of put them on a pedestal because they're extinguishing this oxidative damage by mm. the inflammatory response. But that's probably something we can yeah. go on to later when yeah. we talk about nutrition. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's very simplistic to talk about inflammation as a single thing. There's mm. like lots of different components. Yeah. It's really complex and its relationship to our health is also quite complex. So we need it. It's protecting us. I think a lot of people struggle with the concept of ox- oxidative stress as well, like mm-hmm. you know, oxidative species being uh, produced yes. and causing this collateral damage. Essentially, yeah. it's not as I mean, we're probably going to go into this with yeah. the nutrition, but it's not as simple as you eat antioxidants and therefore you know yeah. you get rid of the oxidative stress. There's a whole bunch yeah. of other chemicals involved in this. Process. Exactly, and the field's kind of evolving. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it's the short term. I think it's really important to clarify and also mm. the sort of cardinal features I'm sure you got taught this in medical school yeah. the, the cardinal features of inflammation the heat the redness the swelling the pain mm. losing function so we all can recognize if we've been sick and we get a fever or you let the example when you cut your finger and it's swelling and red and these are the features we see I'm probably testing myself now but there's the Latin terminology right uh, oh yeah calor uh, calo, dolo uh, <laughs> rubor <laughs> rubor that's it <laughs> what's the next one <laughs> <laughs> in the show notes in the show notes yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I often use the analogy of the immune system as like an army it's standing by it's ready to mount this assault this inflammatory assault when something is going wrong but when uh, whenever you have an army there's there's inbuilt peacekeepers inside mm. the army and this is the bit that I am personally a bit more fascinated yeah. by because most of the time we don't have some kind of inflammatory response. Most of the time, the peacekeepers are working hard to keep inflammation switched off. And Mm. you mentioned earlier that it's not a binary thing. And I think this is really um, true of everything to do with the immune system. It's it's like an analogue, you know, a rheostat that you're adjusting, which is quite useful in a way when we start to talk about lifestyle medicine because although we might not be able to switch off with a diet we can maybe like you know just tweak it adjust it and there are you know ways that it could act as an adjunct to more pharmaceutical level therapies exactly that's why like uh, you know it comes um to a, to a hilt when I, whenever I'm talking to patients about an anti-inflammatory diet, for example, yeah. because it gives the impression that this anti-inflammatory diet is going to switch off yeah, something very, yeah. very rapidly. Whereas, like you said, it's like an analogue. It's like yeah. gently easing something as exactly. an adjunct to all yeah. the other therapies that we have. Yeah. And I'm personally fascinating, fascinated by what keeps us in that environmental balance yeah. uh, of like, you know, what uh, dynamic changes are going on what are the peacekeepers doing when yeah. nothing is actually like yeah. right now I'm not suffering any inflammation yeah. what is keeping me in that state yes exactly I think we often in, in biology use the term homeostasis mm. so like keeping the stasis everything staying the same and I actually think it's a bit misleading because it's we're not we're never really in stasis we're, mm. we're always kind of tipping one way or another that's a like, really good point kind yeah of, you know it's just about trying to find that that kind of biting point and yeah. you know it's, it's normal to sort of 
you know, sway from one to the other with whatever is going on in your life. That's a really good point because I love the concept of homeostasis and I see this almost in everything in, mm-hmm. in what we do, like the changing of the seasons yeah. or when we're, um, uh, you know, just walking flat or just uh, not having any thoughts or we're yeah. euthymic where we don't, we're not ha- happy, we're not sad, we're just yeah. in that kind of intermediate. Yeah. Um, and, and keeping that sort of balance, that equilibrium, yeah. I think is fascinating. Yeah. And now you said that, yeah, like it's, it's more of a dynamic state rather yeah. than... Static state, it's impossible to to be static. Yeah, really. it's it's you know, but we can sort of go within a within a buffer mm. that's that's keeping us healthy. But sometimes it might slide off too far one way or the other. Yeah, so, there's a and, huge psychological element to all this, I think, and there's, yeah. there's a bit of philosophy involved as well. I've been thinking a lot about the the mind body mm. connection recently because, especially talking about inflammation, it's a reaction to something that's going on in our environment Mm. and how do we know what's going on in environment like our cells can sense things at a molecular level but they also are receiving information from what we're seeing and hearing and and sensing with our other senses and that's relaying information to the immune system as well of what it should do so it's gathering all this full picture and then deciding absolutely and it only makes sense that it would marry like that but we don't really tend to talk about them as as the sort of whole organism of mind and body working together yeah i think from a conventional medicine point of view we we look at that um we we have a myopic focus i think on yeah. the internal stresses at the molecular level yes, and yeah. trying to dampen them down with therapeutics yeah but like you said we essentially have multitudes yeah. of different stimuli whether yeah. it be psychological stimuli whether it be molecular stimuli yeah. whether it be guts and which is yeah. why you have this gut brain uh, brain axis yeah. and it's so many different things that could be resulting in an inflammatory yeah. picture i mean uh, all of our immune cells have um receptors for different neuropeptides and neurotransmitters so they're responding to what's happening in our brain and that's responding to what we're seeing around us and so it kind of only makes sense but it's only now, I think, that people are starting to integrate that idea. Yeah, that whole idea of a neuropeptide, so just for the listeners, that's essentially a receptor for uh, a production of... of uh, like a... I mean, acids produced by like the brain. By the brain, like it yeah. could be something like um, adrenaline yeah. or different stress hormones. So or... the very fact that these cells have receptors on them essentially tells us yeah. that there is an evolutionary purpose yeah. as to why we are receptive to yeah. things produced by the brain. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. That's the kind of we've kind of talked about inflammation <laughs> and the acute sense, yeah. and I kind of feel like that's. That you know, that's not the end of the story. No, that's not why we're here no. talking about inflammation. <laughs> that's not why it's everywhere in the in the media and anti-inflammatory diets and everything. Mm. Because, it, as I said, by design, it's supposed to be acute. But what happens if it kind of tumbles over into something that's not acute? It kind of hangs around and you know falls below the radar. You don't get those classic signs of inflammation. You don't have the redness and swelling and mm. heat. You haven't got a fever twenty four seven. Yeah. But there's something smouldering below the surface. Mm. And that this is what we call chronic inflammation. Yeah. And this is a little bit more of what we're probably going to yeah, expand yeah. on today. When it comes to related to lifestyle-related diseases, not yeah. something that you can see in the form of a swollen joint or yeah. you know uh, uh, something that's quite obvious to yes, look at. It's just yeah. the, the, the sort of like indolent more symptoms. More subtle. Mm. Um, and I think that 
you know, there's got to be a stimulus for inflammation. There's got to be a trigger. And in the early days of immunology, people thought that was um, seeing an infection because the molecules on top of germs and viruses, bacteria look very different to what we look like. So our body could say, oh, that's a germ. I'm going to mount an inflammatory response. Um, but now we realise that the immune system, again, it's not that binary. Mm. It doesn't just recognise germs, but it, it recognises danger inside our bodies. Mm. We use that term danger to really encompass anything that's moving us off track. Mm. So um, chronic inflammation can be triggered by stress. So that's a danger system. We've just talked about um you know, different activity in the brain and what that's transmitting through the body. Yeah. Um, it can even be tri- triggered by exercise. So mm. exercise is very stressful, can be very stressful on the body. Yeah, a lot of people don't realise that, that we, yeah. we we have like a dynamic relationship with uh, yeah. the stresses from exercise. Yeah, like There exactly. is a dose response uh, where too much is detrimental, yeah. too little is detrimental. It's a sweet exactly. spot. Exactly, finding the sweet spot. Smoking is a classic one. Um gut permeability mm. so leaky gut again it's one of those kind of terms that sounds yeah. a bit woo woo yeah, but yeah. Um, I spent you know eight years in Switzerland working on leaky gut and it's definitely not woo woo but yeah. just needs to be portrayed the right way and eating tongues of chocolate as well yeah <laughs> and, and, um, and yeah and I think one thing that's probably quite topical today is um, obesity I don't really mm. like the word obesity it's a bit of a problematic word but mm. um how the concept of of how what we're eating can um, trigger inflammation. Yeah. So it could yeah. be these kind of danger signals to our body. It's quite a tough one, that one, isn't it? Because obesity as a term has fallen out of favour. Um, there's got to be a, a more sort of objective way of describing yeah. what we mean by obesity. I I, I suppose like you know, to, to use a, uh, a medical term, adipose excess yeah. or uh, the particular adipose tissue that you find around your visceral organs, yes. which is the most metabolically active exactly. and therefore inflammation producing. Yeah. Um, which isn't necessarily uh, picked up by your BMI measurements yes. or, or even by looking at a person. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, so. exactly. Um, yeah, so these things are a little bit more insidious. Mm. You know, they're not like when you get hit with a, a really bad infection and you get this huge inflammation and it goes away within a week. These are slow, smouldering away, kind of insidious triggers that sort of creep. And one thing that I've been personally interested in and professionally now in a lot of the research I'm doing is what is the cumulative effect of having low-grade chronic inflammation? No one's ever really done those studies. So that's something I'm kind of trying to pursue. Like Normally, we have a lot of checks and balances in to Mm. switch off inflammation when, when triggers go away. Um, and that cyclic process I mentioned earlier where there's like a complete resolution. Mm. But um, these get worn out. It's like anything, you know, if you never get your car serviced, you know, you're going to wear them out. Mm. And um, I like that analogy. As well. yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of analogies going on <laughs> yeah. today, but I do like that it analogy. Helps. I think it's quite... <laughs> this morning, actually, I sent my bike off to get... Um, 
uh, like a bit of an MOT oh, an because MOT, I'd yeah, worn yeah. out the bike, the brake pads right. from like going down the hills in yeah. Brighton. <laughs> and it was like not braking anymore. But you know, like these feedback loops, they get worn out. Yes. Um, yeah. They get desensitized. So when inflammation spills over into something chronic and it's going on long term, but it's, it's much more subtle, it's a much more lower level, like mm. almost below detection. Yeah. And that's why when I try and explain it, and actually, this is something that I talk about in the chapter on inflammation in, in the the book Eat to Be Illness, mm-hmm. um, they can be very vague and they're very hard to actually ascertain. And yes. because of th- how vague they are, you know, it's not something that someone could measure. It's yeah. not necessarily something you can pick out on a clinical history, even though that's exceptionally important. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something that you just need to be a little bit aware of. Is yes. it, you know, that excess fatigue or is it like a, a cognitive uh, dysfunction or is it, you know, um, the inability to lose some weight yeah. or, you know, and, and there's so many triggers for it. Like yeah. we were saying, you know, smoking and, and diet. Yeah. And, and it's probably cool. like mo- multiple triggers involved. Yeah. It's probably very rare that it's just because you're a smoker or just because you have a poor diet. It's probably the whole composite of exactly. lifestyle. And this is why I think inflammation is almost like the poster boy uh, for lifestyle medicine, yeah. because or poster girl uh, for uh, for um, because it, you know it is very holistic in terms of yeah. the way we have to think about it and the, the way we have to treat yes. it and yeah. by essentially plugging all these different holes improving your sleep uh you know making sure that you're getting exposure to nature you know your psychological stimuli Mm -hmm. being part of a a functioning cohesive uh community and you know sense of purpose and all these different things that's how we actually uh ameliorate uh, inflammation imbalance exactly like thinking of this rheostat that you know you might not be able to change certain stresses in your life Mm. or things that you're doing that are maybe causing this low level inflammation but you can maybe tweak it a little bit to take the edge off Mm. with certain diet and lifestyle changes Mm. um so yeah this chronic inflammation is really kind of shot up in the last few years in literature as as a proxy to to disease Mm. um non-communicable diseases so non-infectious diseases that we didn't previously think about in the context of inflammation so things like atherosclerosis you know Mm. cholesterol was really in the limelight for a long time and no one was really saying that inflammation is is um, upstream of atherosclerosis yes, and now they yeah, are now yeah. it's like oh wait a minute yeah um, but it's not how, a simple plumbing problem yeah there's a lot more to it exactly than, yeah. and i think the the questions we don't know is how long has the inflammation been going on before it causes you a problem mm. and what's the cumulative effect of mm. you know is it several years several decades i think when you think of the immune system and the inflammatory arm what we see is as we age that becomes much easier to trigger Mm. so it's i I don't know i guess from an evolutionary perspective we kind of want to get past the time when we pass on our genes and then evolution doesn't really care what happens (laughs) that's a very good point (laughs) (laughs) we're not designed to go into like a hundred like past a hundred really because there isn't an evolutionary purpose for having a hundred euro as we're not fertile yeah (laughs) i mean evolution doesn't actually care about (laughs) anything else but passing on the genes you could argue um and I think I think this term inflammaging, have mm. you heard that? Yeah, That's yeah. Been coined in a few years, the last few years, and it was um, a pathologist who coined it because they found that whenever they were looking at biopsies from, um, like a liver biopsy from a child versus a liver biopsy from an eighty-year-old, 
they would already be able to tell by looking at the sample under the microscope mm-hmm. which uh, one was from the elderly person which one was from the child even if they were blinded yeah. to it because there's a subtle low level of inflammation this infiltration of these immune cells that are inflammatory that you can see in the tissue of an older person mm. so it just creeps up as we get older yeah and there's a whole yes. bunch of reasons for that right because i was uh, we we're just talking before the mm. show about how my last modules um for my nutritional medicine master's yes. Uh, it was talking about uh, immunosenescence so that's the whole uh, concept of your immune system becoming less functioning as we age and how that as a peacekeeper role is less likely to do its its job and then inflammation essentially creeps creeps up and also if you combine that with the knowledge that our microbiota uh, serves less of a function and it becomes less diverse as we age yep. as well for a multitude of different reasons. Yep. There's that. And there's also, if you combine that with sarcopenia, yes. which is essentially, you know, you're losing <laughs> your protein, your yeah. muscle stores, um, and it's being replaced with fat. Yes. Uh, and, yeah. you know, and that's going to be inflammation. So there's yeah. a whole host of reasons why yeah. we see inflammaging. Yeah, exactly. I think one thing, maybe we even mentioned it last time when you said about sarcopenia, so mm. this muscle wasting, the muscles, when you work them, the skeletal muscles produce these particular cytokines that stop the thymus from shrinking. Yeah. And the thymus is, is producing the T cells, which are like the master controllers of the immune system and the T regulatory cells, the peacekeepers as well. Mm. So getting your exercise in, even when you're you know well into your old age, is really important to preserve that part of the immune system and it keeps the inflammation in check so you know I think it's natural as you age things go wrong you know like with my my bike analogy <laughs> it's like 12 years old and you know I ride 12 it to years. death yeah and in Brighton as well there's a lot of yes. salt in the air there exactly. so, yeah, yeah. Um, and it sits outside because I don't have anywhere in to keep it covered you know so and I haven't had it serviced in quite a long time. Yeah. So there's like a wear and tear, and this is the same with our And plus bodies. you're going downhill all the time yes. as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> Normally rushing for work. Yeah. <laughs> when we think of like this inflammaging, and you th- start to think about, well, what do people die of in old age? You mm. know, when it's like heart disease and yeah. cancer, or falling from, you know, muscle wasting mm. and... Um, metabolic dysfunction these are all things that happen to us naturally as we age but if we have heightened levels of this low grade chronic inflammation Mm. seems to just bring them much earlier in life so you know as we age we would all get these things anyway probably Mm. Mm. Um, but it seems to happen much sooner yeah this chronic low level of inflammation has been termed, or there's a term, uh, meta-inflammation in yes. the literature. Yeah. I quite like that because it kind of sort of like, it's it's not inflammation for one thing. It's just like inflammation from multiple sources yes. that we just described. Yeah, yeah. And they tend to kind of make the link to when there's a problem with the metabolism yeah. as well mm. so not in an infectious component because classically we're you know we're all trained to think of inflammation to protect us from infection exactly. but then yeah. they call it like sterile inflammation there's no infection present yeah but it's being triggered by something that's going on below the surface yeah there's an, uh, an argument about um, alzheimer's having an inflammatory component um, yes. and one of those is from indolent uh, viruses or bacteria that are causing low level uh, yeah. of inflammation. So yeah. things like um, EBV, yeah. um, some viruses from the herpes family. Yeah, exactly, because um, they sit dormant in our, in our nerves and can live there for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm watching that research, uh, like, 
just seeing what's yeah. coming out of it. I'm yeah, just it's I, so I, exciting. It's very exciting to watch because yeah. it, it's almost like someone has to pin all these different things together yes. because you can't just go down one route you can't no. just think okay well there's indolent viruses or microbes that are yes. causing inflammation thus if we just give them you know antivirals or antibiotics yeah. we're going to cure the alzheimer's we're going to yeah. reverse it or prevent it there's so many other things going on yes yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah and i think that's an important message for generally what people who are listening that people are always seeking for a magic bullet mm. and I think it's it's going to take a multi-pronged approach when you have these more complex scenarios with things that are you know like smoldering away low-grade inflammation and that being upstream to a whole host of kind of age-related disorders I think you know it's not ever going to be one thing because these are very complex biological processes yeah. under the surface so we have to kind of come from different angles there's a whole bunch of things that i, I can think of being a general practitioner mm. and you know people coming through the door and they have these sort of vague symptoms and yeah you know, there's so many different diagnoses you can pin on someone with these mm -hmm. sorts of diagnosis whether it's low-grade depression yes. whether there's a, an, an underlying infection whether it's something gut related um, yeah. you know the, the, there's so many different presentations of low-grade inflammation it's very yeah. hard to actually pin down and we're taught in a conventional so we're going on a tangent now mm. we're taught in a <laughs> conventional model of healthcare to come up with a diagnosis what's mm, the diagnosis yeah. and treat on the basis of said diagnosis yeah. with usually one agent yeah. if not two or something like that so um yeah that that whole model has to change yeah it has really. to change because our healthcare problems have changed i think that grew from you know pre-antibiotic era yeah. when you know people got serious infections and needed to be treated and you didn't see so many of these conditions that we're talking about, the yeah. sort of more metabolic deregulation and yeah. um, things associated with obesity and type 2 diabetes. Like, there were not so such big problems. So, the yeah, the healthcare system has to change, but it's a big ship to turn. It you is know? huge, <laughs> yeah. And I kind yeah. of despair when there's a lot of, like, uh, people out there who are becoming very distrusting of doctors for that reason, yes. because we go in them, we've, we've been taught to essentially, like, treat one thing. Yeah. Whereas yeah. actually, you know, there's going to have to be a whole paradigm shift amongst medical practitioners, yeah. which I think a lot of people, particularly the younger generations, yeah. are very willing to entertain. Yes. Um, but also, we actually have to teach patients to become the experts of their yes. own health yeah. and take a lot more responsibility than has previously been put on them before yeah. where you know people from older generations I believe were taught if you got the sniffles go see the doctor yeah. if you have anything like you know that's like that might be a symptom yeah. go see the doctor yeah and it's that kind of um, relationship that probably has to evolve yeah yeah definitely and I think a lot of the work you're doing like people on the same page as you trying you? to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my mini Instagram following yeah, no, trying to get the word out <laughs> um I think yeah, we could we could mention the inflammasome. Yeah, because it's a cool word. Yeah. <laughs> so, I really like the word inflammasome. It's I think, brilliant. I think you posted about that graphical abstract on your Instagram, yeah. and I I think that was one of my first Instagram posts. Really, like a little picture of like. Oh um, nice! <laughs> I'm gonna look back day, at that. Yeah, like a year ago or something. Yeah, yeah great. <laughs> yeah, so the inflammasome, apart from being a cool name, is it's a, a thing that the immune system uses to sense what's going on in its environment. And it's particularly sensitive to things that change in our body to do with diet and, um, you know, danger, things like having oxidized cholesterol, like mm. stuff that we know is bad. And mm. it switches on inflammation. It has um, 
turns on this transcription factor, NF kappa B is kind mm. of like the daddy of, of yeah. all the downstream. The daddy, yeah, <laughs> I like that, yeah. <laughs> NF kappa B comes up literally all yeah. the time. Whenever I'm reading like papers and myself, like, NF kappa B, NF right? kappa B. <laughs> it's basically the switch that turns on all these different inflammatory cascades. Mm. There you go, go mm. off and run with it. So you kind of want to not only turn it on when it's necessary. Mm. Um, and it can also sense stress with our mitochondria, so the, the powerhouse of the cell that's providing the energy. Um, and it can it can sense when we have a an excess of calories. So this is why I find obesity quite a tricky term because I think it's not just obesity, but just eating too much yeah. um, and eating some of the wrong things as well and not having the you know the antioxidants and everything that we do need to some degree in the diet yeah that's why you can get some people who have just as much of an inflammatory component yes um but not have the obesity for yeah. a number of different reasons yes whether exactly. it be microbiome or whether it be genetic even yeah um but if you're eating an excess of the wrong type of calories yeah. that are nutrient poor energy yeah. dense um you're going to have this inflammation yeah. component, and you're not countering it with other things in the diet that yeah. are going to be really beneficial. Yeah, the anti-inflammatories. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that um, the inflammasomes inform this particular cell death, which has got another cool name. Yeah, pyrotosis. Oh, pyrotosis! <laughs> I know. <laughs> Everyone's going to be switching. Off I know. Now yeah, they're, yeah. Like, they're just going geeking out. On some Pyro from the Latin, like <laughs> meaning fire or something. Yeah. Or like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> geeky names aside, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, I think the other thing that'd be interesting to mention, you know, you mentioned that the symptoms of chronic inflammation are imperfect. We don't yeah. know really what would be the composite of somebody who has a low-grade inflammation, but without any overt disease, we don't mm. know what those symptoms are. They mm. could be really vague, insidious, not just feeling quite yourself and headaches or malaise but also going back to how the immune system talks to the mind mm. when there is when inflammation is triggered it's telling your body that there's a danger there's something there you should go and retreat and get well again so it tells your brain to sort of withdraw from the world yeah. and we know this we call it sickness behaviors mm. so things that the inflammatory response is producing they're acting on the brain the brain is then giving the signal okay I shouldn't go out you know all singing and dancing because there's something going on and my, my body has to fight it mm. um, and I should retreat and I think that's where now we're starting to see the link with depression and mental ill health yes, yeah. so this could be a kind of um, red flag and we know that many people with mental ill health don't respond to a um, pharmacolo um, pharmacological agents, yeah. agents mm -hmm. um, and they're starting to do trials looking at how they might improve with um, anti-inflammatory interventions. Yeah, so there was some a, really, oh, yeah, I was going to su suggest the um, the SMILES uh, yeah. trial uh, that yeah. was out in Australia, I believe. Um, I think I referenced it in the new book where I talk about mood. Yes. Um, because I think even now it's quite uh, taboo to talk about nutrition and mental yeah. health yeah. because of this again binary thought process yeah. where you know if you just take this uh, diet then you're going to switch off your inflammation yeah. uh, 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 your mental health is issues in the same way we I think have been led to believe 
um, wrongly, um, or maybe it's just a misinterpretation <coughs> of uh, antidepressants and mm-hmm. how those are a magic cure essentially yeah. for mental health issues, whereas actually it's a it's a very very complex condition. Yeah, but it is really really interesting to see things yes. like the Smiles Trial that yeah. essentially encourage a Mediterranean style of eating with lots yeah. of fresh legumes and lots of different antioxidant-rich, yeah. colourful vegetables, yeah. nuts yeah. and seeds, uh, <laughs> extra virgin olive oil and, and fatty acids, and how this is having a demonstrable, measurable yeah. impact on, on people's uh, mood. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm. It's so cool. Yeah, that was another um, study that got like lots of different kind of discussions going I think, yeah, when it came out. Definitely, yeah. And the mind diet as well, even though that's more towards the dementia side of mm-hmm, things, mm-hmm. Um, is again a modified Mediterranean diet um, that uh, encourages the uh, consumption of things like anthocyanin-rich berries and, mm-hmm. and stuff, purely from a, a cognitive point of view. But again, you know, there are some other uh, sort of knock-on effects from that uh, yeah. diet as well in terms of happiness and subjective scores of like well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a good kind of yeah transition into anti inflammatory lifestyle. Yeah. What yeah. really is it? <laughs> it seems like literally everyone's on this anti inflammatory sort yeah. of like or there's tons of like supplements with claims of yeah. anti inflammation that yeah. give the impression that inflammation is something that everyone needs to rid yes. uh, themselves of, you know. It's yeah, the same exactly. uh, like I said, I think it's a, a similar viewpoint to um how we used to see microbes in our yeah. environment as being bad and exactly. they all need to be, you know, removed. Whereas actually like we've just been saying, inflammation is a very important self signaling yeah. yeah. um, uh, process. And I think you know, having an anti-inflammatory lifestyle in today's world is is kind of an uphill battle. Mm. I certainly find, knowing what I know, that it's 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 hard because modern life, it's it's quite stressful yeah. at times. It's busy, um, and you know we're bombarded with things telling us what we shouldn't shouldn't do and shouldn't shouldn't eat. And you know, it's it's not easy to. Uh, you know, live the anti-inflammatory lifestyle as all of the, you know, information we're given would pertain that we should. Exactly. Um, but I think if, if people are thinking about this in a pragmatic way, you want to really look at where where is the inflammation coming from? We've mentioned like a few things, um, you know, being sedentary, smoking, certain dietary components. Um, but I think stress is like a huge one. Yeah. Um, and that's something that people don't really maybe recognize so absolutely much. yeah we had Rongen on the podcast ah, a couple of weeks yes. ago and we were talking about the concept uh, that he's got in his book um, about micro stress doses yeah which I think is is very interesting um, yeah. because I, I have those micro stress doses myself you know when yes. the uh, alarm clock goes off and I'm in a deep slumber that's yeah. that's a little stress for me yeah um, I no longer keep my phone anywhere near my bedroom yeah. but I know a lot of people do because it's their alarm yeah, clock so their alarm <laughs> but you know I have an alarm clock now so <laughs> there is no excuse but I have my children <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah so there you go you're micro stress yeah. in the morning even though you remember you love them and everything yeah, but, um, yeah there, there's so many different elements to your morning routine that will give yeah. you uh, just little bits of stress yeah. and, and that's why I personally find a, a morning mantra I know this is going down yeah. the psychological route now but a morning mantra really does settle me in the morning yeah. so I sit on the edge of my bed I think I've shared this in the past but I sit on the edge of my bed and 
even if it's grey and raining outside, yeah. even if I don't feel well rested, even though I know I've got a ton of things I need to do today, I always say this one line to me. And it, it can be personalised, it can be yeah. anything, but the world is beautiful. The uh, I'm going to have a productive day. I am super happy and I'm yes. well loved. And, yeah. and, you know, just that as a reminder for me brings my stress level yes. that my alarm clock has given me yeah. right back down. Yeah, um, that's, that's amazing. And I, I think it's, it's, well, for me, maybe with, you know, having a science mind, I like to think of it in terms of the biochemistry. If I think if what I'm doing, a bit of breathing, a bit of like, you know, positive attitude, focusing, just taking a moment of pause, that's having a biochemical effect on my body and I know it and I Absolutely. know you know the, the pathways that are going to be triggered Actually, let's and talk about that because I don't think a lot of people realise that the process of deep breathing yeah. actually reduces literally measurably reduces inflammation in exactly. your body exactly yeah so I think that and in fact that's something I do with my kids when they get um, you know they're four they get crazy and they get really like strung up about the most stupid things obviously it means the world to them yeah. but um, going to and, the doctors yeah <laughs> <laughs> we, now I get them to do this thing where I'm like we take a really deep breath in and we're like fill our lungs mm. and then we like blowing it all out to the clouds and they love it nice. and sometimes when I'm like in the morning trying to like organise their lunch and my lunch and get them dressed and get myself dressed and get out the door to work on time they're like mummy you need to like breathe it in really? and blow it out to the clouds and oh stuff. that's and just, brilliant it's, it's kind of interesting because when kids get wound up I sometimes I'm like what do I do to try and you know because they're so you know toddlers have a have a meltdown and what, what I need to find a little method to, yeah. for them to to feel like they can do something and then breathing just seemed to me to be something that would be useful for them to start Absolutely. learning now yeah actually you know there was a I, I was lecturing um I was, was part of this day uh, it's a little conference <coughs> at the uh, Royal College of Emergency Medicine last mm. year and um I was doing my little segment on nutrition and how to make quick rapid meals for emergency staff after they finish shift instead of going to the chicken shop which a lot of them do not naming any names um but uh one of the consultants who's a emergency physician in Ireland um, he uh, is a really big fan of mindful moments during the day oh. so emergency medicine the department's super stressful mm -hmm. like you know you're just going from one patient to the other and he encourages people if they even have like five or ten seconds yeah. to have a mindful moment so for example when you're filling out the um, information on a blood bottle for example mm -hmm. or you're writing a, a request for an x-ray um, you know that's 15 10 seconds where you're not really doing yeah. much apart from copying some information yeah. have a mindful moment checking with your breath yeah or when you're going from patient to patient and you're washing your hands when you're washing your hands, have a mindful moment. Breathe in through your nose, breathe yeah. out through your mouth. Uh, when you stop to have a, a glass of water, which you should do and we don't do yeah. enough, but have that five, ten seconds, breathe in through your nose, breathe out through your mouth. Yeah. And honestly, the way his whole like demeanor and, you know, he's yeah. a hard, hard, um, sort of hardcore emergency physician with a lot on his plate. And mm -hmm. for him to encourage mindful moments, I thought it was really encouraging. Yeah that's really super I love mm. that um, I think it is about hacking your environment yeah uh, I know that I make I have a kettle in my office and I put it at the other side of where my desk is so I have to get up and walk to the window to boil the kettle and while I'm waiting on the kettle to boil I'm like just look out the window because mm. we're near the lots of countryside so it's quite nice um, and you know while the kettle's boiling I'm just looking I'm not doing anything yeah. and I'm looking far instead of 
my computer, which is near, yeah. and that switch is quite restful for the the eyes and stuff. And yeah. just that, like, it gets me out of my seat. I could put it next to my desk if I wanted. Yeah, never yeah. have to move. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's kind of hacking your environment. Yeah, sort of definitely making that um, because I think stress is pervasive. It's like almost part of our everyday language. Mm. There was a lot of um, research actually looking at um, uh, urban environments and how that is stress provoking, yeah. um, yeah. and it affects your cognition as well. There's a, there's a great book, book. There's a great book that I've linked on my website um, called "Your Brain on Nature." Oh, um, cool. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend yeah. it. It's written by, I believe, a psychiatrist and a physician, and they basically looked at loads of studies. A lot of them coming from Japan, mm-hmm. uh, looking at you know uh, urban forest bathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, not urban. But just forest bathing, the Shirinjuku, I think oh, it's called, yes, yeah. um, and how uh, the different sorts of phytochemicals that you find in the air yeah. can actually be stress relieving, anti-inflammatory, yeah. um, as well as uh, just the uh, the whole process of walking in nature yeah. and looking at natural scenarios yeah. and how that can affect your mood as well yeah. over the rest of the day. That's you know, so there nice. is a lot of fact in there. Yes. There's a lot of science behind and it. The other thing I read last week is I think in Scotland mm. they've just started started um, um, GPs prescribing nature. Really? I, I just saw a headline. I need oh, to look amazing. Yeah, yeah. Maybe <laughs> yeah. look it up. Um, but yeah, there's something based on a study they did where they were um, encouraging people to go out to nature. Amazing. Um, to try and, yeah, help as part of the, the, the treatment. Definitely. Which is really nice. The other thing about nature that I like and I think is often quite forgotten is, you know, a lot of these organisms in our environment so we're breathing them in all the time Mm. um these bugs that then go into our digestive tract become part of our microbiome Mm. and they're abundant in nature Mm. you know so you're breathing in all that uh, all those good bugs soil-based bugs Mm. which they don't necessarily take up residence in your gut but they pass through and they have a transient effect and they keep that diversity going and they bring different you know things to your microbiome and so just going out in the countryside that's really good to keep that diversity that's amazing like yeah breathing it in. that's yeah. super interesting and I, and I like that uh, aspect of the transient effect as well yeah. because a lot of studies particularly those looking at um, uh, probiotics and stuff yeah. even though the the gut microbes that you're so the the live microbes that you're ingesting even though they might not take up residence in your gut they might still be having a demonstrable effect uh, on on health outcomes and I think that's quite important to recognise as well so I've seen some studies where they just look whether the microbiota has changed significantly whereas actually there might be something else going on something else going on and then Mm. they kind of move on their way but it's still important yeah so getting into nature and stress you know, we've talked to the different things that can trigger inflammation. Stress on its own can actually trigger these inflammatory cells in your body because they're working on the stress axis and they're releasing like um, noradrenaline. So these um, chemicals from the brain mm. that are they have the immune cells have receptors on their surface and it's saying wow there's some danger because mm. the stress response is like a fight or flight response mm. isn't it it's like you're standing in the middle of the road and there's a bus coming and you get this huge rush of adrenaline because you have to run to get out of the way and then your body's like well there's an attack I've got to prepare the immune system because you know get the army ready because something's happening so all your inflammatory cells get primed mm. and then you know that adrenaline drops and then your cortisol starts to come up and that sort of switch takes you into the next part of the inflammatory mm. response and starts to shape it. And actually, cortisol is supposed to turn the inflammation off. 
Yeah. So that's the kind of classic stress hormone people think about. But if you have a chronic stress situation, you just wear out all those circuits and you become less sensitive to the cortisol and the initial stressful um, events not going away. So you're still producing that initial burst of like um, chemicals that are switching on the inflammation. And it's not switching off again because the circuit's getting worn out. And the interesting thing is that to prepare your body for fight or flight, you also become quite insulin resistant because you need the glucose mm. to fuel you to run off. And also mounting an inflammatory response is quite costly. You know, you need some sort of currency there and glucose is like the, a great fuel to, you know, stoke that fire and then you can run off. You can, um, you can almost like see these like downstream effects yeah. just occurring when you see that in the acute setting, which is what it's meant to do, and yeah. everything goes back down to normal. Yeah. But... If it's just consistently there, you have a consistent picture of that raised cortisol, yeah. the raised glucose, the insulin sensitivity, because the more exposed you are to it, yeah. the more your cells are exposed to it, the more tolerant they become. Yes. It's essentially exactly. like a drug. Like, yeah. you know, you, you, the more you have of, um, I can't think of an example now, but an opiate medication, the more tolerant, tolerant. and therefore, you more, exactly, yeah, you need to have more hit. of said drug or medication to have the same desired effect yeah it's the same thing the same kind of concept when it comes to things yeah. like glucose and the thing that i find cortisol quite fascinating um don't pretend to know all of the you know ins and outs of it but what it what it does it, it's actually trying to switch off the inflammatory response but in the long term it you know it kind of gets worn out and can't do that but what it does do is it sort of swings the immune system towards another kind of flavor what we call the th2 phenotype which i'm sure you're familiar with is is a key driver of mm. allergy mm. so when you're stressed you might end up having an allergic flare or your allergies might be worse you might experience eczema exactly. um or asthma attacks just by that whole like stress response being yeah. triggered so and you see this like in patients as well like whenever I ask them uh, if someone's experiencing a flare of the psoriasis or yeah. eczema or even asthma as well, what is going on at this point in time yeah. in your life? You know, as a as an adjunct to the rest of the history, yeah. it's almost always invariably yeah. associated with stress. And people will tell you as well, like you know, when I'm stressed, I get a, psor yeah. a psoriasis uh, flare and I need some of those anti-inflammatory yeah. creams or anti-inflammatory medications. Yeah. And you know, it, it, there's a clear link there. Yeah, but somehow we don't quite make the link of let's deal with the stress yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean I'm as guilty of this as anyone because yeah. I think I have everything in my life I'm, I'm kind of a natural stress head sometimes well, yeah. I, when I think of myself compared to my, my husband and how we kind of deal with the ebbs and flows of life you know he kind of um, it, it doesn't phase him so much whereas I, I feel like I feel it more but yeah. you know even knowing what I know that's probably the one thing that I struggle to handle the most absolutely and you you can think about it from the perspective of uh, gut health mm -hmm. right so a lot of people uh, unfortunately will automatically opt for tests yeah. uh, to see if they're intolerant for something because yeah. they have gut symptoms every time they eat yes yeah but when you really look at the complete picture of yeah. this patient in front of you a lot of times it is related to stress yes. which is having uh, an, an impact on their gut yeah. symptoms which is potentially the the, the cause of probably yeah. other uh, issues going on as well but invariably the cause of some gut related yeah. symptoms the issue is people um maybe culturally are just yeah. not accepting of the fact that stress could be causing these yeah. things and they can't see what's right in front of them it's not thought of as a biological thing it's sort of thought yeah. as a 
like psychological thing, yeah. isn't it? And actually, as a GP, I have to be very careful about bringing up the concept or the, yeah. the subject of "Are you stressed?" Yeah, um, because a lot, and and I think I would have the same reaction as well if someone yeah. tried to um, uh, imply that something is in my head I think yeah, is, is the first yes, thing but yeah. someone tr- uh, trying to imply that my physical symptom is somehow related to something that's in the locus of my control yes. um, which unfortunately it, in a lot of cases it is yes. but you have to tackle that very sensitively yeah and we don't we kind of have a diffuse definition of stress as well yeah. isn't it? it's not really like one thing to, I, I find that actually yeah, yeah. I, th- I think maybe uh, the vernacular around stress needs to be yeah. um, assessed because stress isn't just one thing yeah. you know th- there's a, a behavioural element to it a psychosocial element yeah. to it a historical element to it exactly. it's probably a genetic component as yes. well to how we deal with different si- types of um, obstacles in, yeah. our, in our life yeah. and to encompass that in, in just one word is, is probably a little bit yeah. you know naive but I think like the immune system, actually, what I mentioned earlier, it's it's only ever the inflammatory response is only ever meant to be acute. The stress response is only really meant to be acute. It's designed that way, isn't it? And mm. so it's when these things spill over into something a little bit more um, constant and intermittent. That's yeah, we really do start to see problems that filter down to to our health. And As expected, we have really gone down the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> we can um, start to, I don't know, maybe we could talk about the microbiome. You mentioned yeah. the um, microbiome and stress. Yeah. Well, I, I spent quite a lot, lot of time working on leaky gut, which um, when we're talking about inflammation... Strangely enough, the gut is actually a source of inflammation. (laughs) I don't want people to be alarmed. Strange that. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we threw all sorts of stuff down our... Um, our digestive tract we're swallowing stuff in the air um, all sorts of things and we have this real delicate lining in in the gut and I've looked at many biopsies of guts over the years and it's really hard to find a healthy gut that doesn't have some kind of inflammation there because it's doing a lot all the time and inflammation is trying to protect that barrier make sure it's all okay well I suppose um, a healthy gut would have naturally inflammation yeah. right it, it shows that A the immune system is working and B we are uh, tolerating an environment that is yes. essentially hostile exactly yeah <laughs> and I think everything that we know about or think about diet mm. uh, and disease all has the microbiome at its interface so I always think, you know, your own your diet is only as good as your microbiome. Mm. If you're eating, you know, the most fantastic diet in the world, but you've had a bad history with, you know, poor gut health for yeah. whatever reason, lots of rounds of antibiotics mm. and all sorts of things, then, you know, if that hasn't recovered properly, then you're not really going to um, be getting the best out of your food. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the gut is a source of inflammation. When we eat a meal the gut naturally kind of opens up. And when you said about stress and the Mm. the microbiome, actually when we're stressed, the gut opens up even more. And the reason for that is because we need that food quickly. We've got to run, we've got to do something crazy because it's fight or flight mode. So the gut is opening up even more. And unfortunately that's, that's good because, you know, it's helping our digestion. It's helping us absorb nutrients that we need. But at the same time, there's some collateral, that give Mm. or take. Um, And some of the microbiome, the bugs that live in your gut, they slip through 
into the bloodstream and then they become a problem mm. because they are bacteria after all. They're meant to live in the gut. They're not meant to live in the bloodstream. Bits of them are floating around in the body and they contain patterns that switch on the inflammatory response because inflammation is fine-tuned to recognise when there's there's bacteria around and so you get this inflammation in the blood and you can measure it and you can measure it in you know me or you healthy Mm. people with no underlying health conditions if you have a large meal you will see what they call postprandial endotoxemia so that's when bits of bacteria are in your blood after eating and you get a postprandial inflammatory response and you can see inflammatory markers in the blood and they they should kind of go away again after maybe four hours and then back to normal and then it starts again and the process you know you have your next meal and there are certain things that make it worse so we know a lot of people get really freaked out by the fact that I talk about whenever (laughs) I'm giving a lecture and I talk about how like um, digestion by virtue of what's going on in your gut is a pro-inflammatory process that isn't to say you shouldn't be eating I know it's just another way in which we need to uh, re-establish what we mean by inflammation and re-establish the importance of inflammation as well It's, it's very important and we've started to piece together what uh, what triggers leaky gut more than others. So having a very heavy calorie dense meal kind of tends to open up your gut and make it more leaky. Yeah. Saturated fat, mm. we know that this just causes the tight junctions to open. Yeah. So um, we also know that fructose, so really high doses of fructose, mm-hmm causes the tight junctions to open up the gut, make it leaky. So you've got more of this bacteria seeping through. Mm. But we also know that there's a few things that seal it up again and make it really tight. So fiber is the key one. Fiber is having a moment. I'm so happy about this. (laughs) Whenever people ask me about immune boosting foods, I'm like, Fiber. Just fiber. <laughs> fiber. Yeah, because yeah. it's 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 the fuel for our microbiome. Yeah. And it's not the fiber per se, but it's what the microbiome does with it. They break it down, they make a whole multitude of things that yeah. we call postbiotics. Yeah. And the key ones are probably the short chain fatty acids. Yeah. So they've probably been most well researched. And one of the things that they do is they seal the gut back up again so they make it tight one thing i came across recently was how you know how you can get lots of some cereals with added fiber and stuff yeah it's quite short-sighted because the type of fiber that they're adding is usually just yeah. one type whereas yeah, actually exactly. when you have uh, fiber in the form of an apple for example yeah. you're getting multiple different types of fiber yes. of which there are hundreds and those uh different types of fibers can actually blunt the the sugar response yeah. because they form almost like um a lattice uh, yeah. uh inside your intestines so it reduces the absorption of the sugar yes. and it actually improves that sort of um, the uh, intestinal hyperpermeability that yeah. you get in the tight junction opening. Yeah. Um, so again, another reason to yes. eat whole to forms eat fiber. of fibre. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of reduces the, the caloric availability of the food, like yes. what you mentioned with the apple. And I think, you know, if you're eating fibre-poor foods, it's much easier for your body to absorb all yes. those calories yeah. and you can overeat. And we know that overconsumption of food, as we mentioned earlier, can um, feed into this whole chronic inflammatory thing. Yeah. And it's, again, another one of those reasons why. And we're always a bit very <coughs> wary, very. <laughs> mm. I'm always a bit wary when people um, 
just define their food by the calorific intake or the, the calorific content. Yes. Because an almond, a whole almond, is going to have a completely different metabolic effect yes. compared to the same calorie content of white bread, uh, for yes. example, or a yeah. burger or whatever. Um, not to say that I'm never going to have a burger again. <laughs> I'm definitely going to have a burger again. Um, but uh, in the majority of cases, yeah. you know, the, the calories or the, what you're absorbing from an almond is actually far less in terms of energy, yeah. but far more in terms of nutrient density. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, other things can sort of affect the gut barrier, infections, alcohol, um, even, um, you know, exercise can cause a bit of a leaky gut. It's all a kind of adaptation that's yeah. supposed to be a good thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, the one thing to key ho- to drill home is just like the fibre and the diet. Yeah. Um, There's a paper um, that I'll probably put in the show notes. It was a review article in the Journal of Obesity mm. uh, looking at anti-inflammatory nutrition as a pharmacological intervention for Ooh. obesity. And they yeah. use the word obesity, obviously, the scientists. Mm-hmm. But I just think that's absolutely fascinating yes. where we just don't talk about, you know, the calories in, calories out stuff, even though I think that's important at the extremes. Mm-hmm. But anti-inflammatory nutrition as being a yeah. therapy, that's, that's super fascinating. Do you know what? I love that. And I'm, you know, I'm all about the sort of anti-inflammatory lifestyle and diet as a way to sort of tweak you know what's going on in the body and keep you on the right side of the right balance but I, I saw some you know I, I, on, on social media you get all sides of the argument and everyone's shouting their yeah. somebody was actually like trying to poo-poo the you know this anti-inflammatory mediterranean diet by saying you know We've got we've we've got drugs for that. You can take an ibuprofen or something, mm. and I, and it made me think. Well, yes, you can, and those are drugs that are anti-inflammatory, but they're suitable for short-term use. Yeah. They're not tackling the problem of chronic inflammation. They have side effects yeah. that are problematic when you take them for long periods of time. So we do need to look for more gentle lifestyle approaches to tone down inflammation. We Absolutely. can't just be, you know, we can't just say oh anti-inflammatory diet is another fad you know we have to like say look at the utility in it yeah there's a lot of long-term benefit from people changing their lifestyle and diet Um, and although we have to sort of sift through the uh, the noise and chatter of yeah. a lot of sensationalist claims. What's underlying the Mediterranean diet in terms of anti-inflammatory capability yes. is super interesting. We yes. should appreciate that. Exactly. And people with chronic inflammatory diseases often want to look to take things out of their diet. Mm. And I often think of this as being like a food prison. Yeah. You know, when you look online and you're following some really strict protocol where you yeah. have to like admit, uh, you know, 50 different foods because yeah. they might, um, you know, the might be causing your horrible autoimmune condition and Mm. I think actually a lot of those foods might be quite useful but maybe it's the amounts you're eating and maybe it's not about what you're taking out but what about you're putting in so making sure you've got the fiber yeah because it's going to nurture the microbiome to produce these short chain fatty acids take care of your gut lining short chain fatty acids are also anti-inflammatory so they're mm. also being absorbed into the bloodstream going around the body and toning down the inflammatory response and they are really important for these T regulatory cells yeah. these kind of peacekeepers that um, have been repeatedly found to be depleted in lots of chronic inflammatory conditions so we know there's a defect in the, the regulatory cells so we know fibre is a way to boost them not only fibre but we need vitamin D which is something that we're in the UK we're quite susceptible to being um, deficient in. Mm. Something I found out recently was um, 
you know, there's lots of trials around vitamin D and, and often they give kind of conflicting results. The enzymes that we need in the gut to utilize vitamin D so that it can have this regulatory effect in the immune system, they're induced by certain microbiota. So if you don't have them in your gut, you could be taking all this vitamin D supplements and, you know, sitting in the sun and all the rest of it. (laughs) Maybe it's your immune system can't use it because you haven't got the right microbiota. Yeah, yeah. It's It's really interesting. I I think it's so fascinating, particularly when it comes to um, even uh, um, pharmaceuticals. You know, some of them we can't use because we don't have the capacity to digest them properly. Um, and lots of different vitamins as well like you know you can take vitamin b12 you can take uh, iron but if you don't have uh, the mechanisms to digest them actually properly utilize them then they're just going through your system unfortunately exactly Um, so your diet's only as good as the bugs that eat it for you but fortunately there are loads of things you can do to nurture that sort of population exactly and And, um, you know if you do have if you've given yourself this food prison where you've followed some really extreme restrictive diet online because you think it's going to cure your inflammatory disease you're going to reduce your microbial diversity mm-hmm. and you're going to put yourself at risk of more long-term complications yeah. um, i actually had a patient come in the other day and um he uh was on um uh, and he put himself on an aip diet an anti-inflammatory oh, yes. diet oh no yeah. sorry uh, Anti- autoimmune protocol, protocol diet sorry yeah. Yeah. Um, which is where you remove certain uh, things but you increase your consumption of fruits and vegetables and yeah. stuff like that and whilst his symptoms actually had improved yes. massively um, his measures of inflammation were still quite high. In fact, right. it's raised. Oh. I couldn't understand that. I was just trying to yeah. figure out like what is going on in the pathophysiology of his body that is showing, at least in the serum levels and in, in, in the markers, that his inflammation is higher than before, but his symptoms have improved. I couldn't really understand so that mismatch. Slightly placebo? Yeah. If he's self-reporting Maybe, symptoms. Maybe, yeah. Also, yeah. perhaps if he's reducing fibre, yeah. he's got this postprandial inflammation. It can even depend when you measure yeah. inflammatory markers. If he's just eaten, if he's had quite a high-fat meal, if he's reduced a lot of particular food groups that are intrinsically high in fiber yeah, so yeah. there's so much be, nuance to this actually. Yes, and i think a yeah. lot of people are perplexed by what we can do to measure inflammation yes. i mean in the nhs we're pretty you know we, we have a very limited sort of uh, tests yeah. that we can actually utilize i think there's there's no good way to measure i think we're still trying to figure that out yeah and it could um change depending on the time of day that you measure yeah. from someone I think in the lab you guys have a whole plethora of different things yeah that you we measure normally out, like. try and measure uh, endotoxin with okay. this LAL assay but even that it's you know endotoxin is everywhere it's, yeah. it's a bacterial component that we know triggers inflammation and it leaks from the gut into the bloodstream mm. um, we also do things like CRP and IL-6 and TNF yeah, yeah. Um, but we're starting to look at the different um, LPS binding proteins. Okay, so yeah. things that form the toll-like receptor for. Yeah, yeah. LPS binding protein will be yeah. useful. I think there are some companies that do that in the private world. I'm not too sure Maybe. how accurate everything is, though. Um, yeah. But IL-6, I think, would be super fascinating. Yeah. I know in the States, they look at things like um, HSR, CRP, so high-sensitivity yeah. CRP, and yeah. um, homocysteine, um, which I think is quite important yeah. for a lot of people. Um, also, um, hemoglobin A1C. Yeah. So this is a measure of, like, your blood sugar over mm. quite a period of time, like yeah. several months. And, um, you know, if you have sugar hanging around in the blood, 
it kind of sticks to things. So mm. that's why we have these mechanisms in our body where we produce insulin and we get it out of the blood as quick as possible and store it mm. as glycogen in our liver or in our muscles. And when we constantly have sugar going into the system, it's it's constantly in the blood and we're having to work hard to get it out of the blood because it sticks to things and it glycates them. Mm. And when we get these sort of glycation end products, they're called, mm-hmm. the, the immune cells actually have receptors for these as well. Mm. So again, this can be a dangerous s- a signal. Yeah. Switching on inflammation, there's lots of sugar hanging around. And that's yeah. not to say sugar is bad, but it's normalizing your blood sugar and like you don't need to constantly be eating sugar from the moment you wake till exactly you yeah. go to bed this, this whole concept of this uh, ages production the advanced glycemic end products yes. uh, as a result of a high sugar diet and, yes. and those causing inflammation by essentially being like big clumpy materials that like bump yeah. into things and then essentially like cause trauma and, yeah. and there's a whole bunch of other mechanisms behind it as well but that's the way I like to yeah, <laughs> do yeah, the no. analogy of yeah <laughs> um, but yeah I suppose that's one of the reasons why we see like high sugar diets and inflammation yes. not to say that like all sugar is the devil essentially yeah. i think there's there's a bit of miscommunication there yeah. as well i often get asked about the the link between sugar and inflammation and the, and yeah. the evidence behind that and yeah. whilst there is uh, and whilst i would always advise you know uh, a, a relatively low sugar diet a low added yeah. refined sugar diet yeah. isn't to say that you know you can't have things like no. bread or whole grain pasta or you know and yeah whole grains, you a know. lot of the foods that contain sugar are intrinsically also the foods that have fiber inside so like you say like grains and mm. root vegetables and stuff like starchy vegetables the the fiber is really important they come with you know sugar packaged up in different forms at the yeah. same time it's not to say sugar is bad for you mm. um you know and and the immune system runs on sugar i always think of you know the macros matter people ask me about micronutrients all the time what yeah. vitamins go to yeah. boost my immune system but i'm like you know the macros matter the fats the carbs yeah. the proteins the proteins are important for the immune system to build the armies to exactly. do various things mm. but also the you know glucose from whichever source you get it from whether it's the most starchy vegetable or or whole grain or whether it's from a bag of sweets it all gets broken down to sugar in mm. our body mm, definitely in different ways and and this is the currency that the immune system uses to um mount inflammatory responses because uh, they are costly they need an energy resource so um what happens when we're mounting inflammation it's quite interesting, actually. I think you've already spoken maybe about cancer uh-huh. with, yeah, um, with uh, Dr. Dr. Ilsa. Yeah, and yeah. I, I'm sure she described quite nicely the Warburg effect. Yeah, yeah. So this is a phenomenon that we see in cancer cells where mm. they have this increased uptake of glucose mm. for fuel. And a couple of years ago, only yeah, really quite recently, mm. they've discovered that the immune system does exactly the same, this Warburg effect, when they're mounting an inflammatory response. So the way that they, you know, rapidly use glucose. Um, and it all sounds very scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's not to say that having lots of sugar causes this to exactly. happen. But if you're already on that inflammatory train because you're stressed and you've, you know, got all other things going on in your lifestyle, sugar is the fuel that's mm. going to drive that train forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're really starting to unpick this immunometabolism. So at the level of the immune cells, but also at the level of us as a whole person. And the interesting thing is that these peacekeeper cells that I keep mentioning, these T-regs, yeah. um, they don't use sugar for their metabolism. So they 
um, oxidize lipids. Right. So they have yeah. a totally different metabolism yeah. from um, from the the fire the the inflammatory cells. Yeah. Um, which I think is interesting in itself that they choose different fuels to do their job. That is really interesting. For again, from an evolutionary perspective, I'm trying to figure out what would be the advantages of having two different types of cells with two different fuel sources. Yeah. Um, and that's why I suppose you see an anti-inflammatory effect when you have like more things like omega three and fatty yes. acids in your diet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think. You know, if you have a poor diet mm. that's really high in sugar and you might have a bit of metabolic dysfunction, metabolic disease, type 2 diabetes, a chronic low-grade inflammation because of your lifestyle um, and you're lacking the fibre, the you know, you're not going to be able to nurture that regulatory component mm. um, and you're not going to be able to make the switch. It's, it's kind of like something's broken where you can't switch between the fat oxidising regulators and then the sugar... Um, fueling the inflammatory response. Yeah. And I think that's where we're we're still not clear on what's going on with the switch. But there's definitely a way that the immune system is sensing our nutritional status. Mm. And that's what I mean when people are over consuming calories. Yeah. There's a sign that like the, there's there's an abundance of nutrition. And I think when we reduce that and and there's a lot of work around fasting and mm. that's showing miraculous changes and in inflammatory diseases because it's just tapping the brakes on that and it's restricting the glucose and you have to oxidize your own body fat stores yeah. because that's um what's available, what's available to you yeah. for energy and it's a different kind of fuel and that's going to nurture the regulatory cells so. this is a nice segue into our rapid fire round of oh. questions actually yeah because we've been chatting for ages oh yeah <laughs> um intermittent fasting and inflammation this is a super interesting topic because yeah. From what I've seen of, of fasting, and, and just as a caveat, you know, fasting is only appropriate for those who have a, a, a comfortable relationship with food, who, yeah. uh, you know, are doing it conscientiously. Yeah. Um, um, but the evidence base looking at what happens when you fast to yeah. inflammation, to uh, upregulating autophagy, yeah. removing these senescent cells that are just hanging around yes. causing inflammation, yeah. um, and the microbiome effect, I think is, is, it's really, really interesting. It's profound, mm. isn't it? Mm. And I, yeah, I really hope that we get some concrete picture coming out of the literature soon because already people are talking about their own different protocols yeah. that you should do yeah. and people are dipping their toe in it um, and I kind of think why does it have to be all or nothing yeah, yeah. so we know that a lot of people self-report fasting or even like a low carb diet mm. really helps with their symptoms mm. if they have some inflammatory disease mm -hmm. and it's probably just because they're well, there's many mechanisms going on, but, mm. you know, they're withholding um, fuel mm. so the inflammatory thing can't keep exactly. running anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like I say, fasting functions on many levels. It does a lot of things, um, but it's, you know, reducing the energy intake. We know that energy surplus can stoke the infl inflammatory fire. And it's also mildly stressful, like I say, it kills off the old cells, mm. Um this and kind of concept of like the hormetic effect I yes. find fascinating as well, right? Yeah. Where a little bit of bad does yeah. you some good because it encourages your body to essentially have a um, 
uh, a resilient effect. It, yes. You know, it's kind of uh, uh, encouraging the mechanisms yeah. that lead to survival. Exactly. Encouraging you to be able to utilise your fat stores yeah. and not just, you know, keep stoking the inflammatory fire. And that, uh, yeah, I think it's, um, you know, uh, have you ever heard of that kind of old phrase, Feed a, feed a cold star feed a cold, feed. Yeah, 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 I've heard of that, yeah. Well, you know, it's like an old wives' tale, but there's actually some truth in it because when you have a fever, so the, the saying goes, star of a fever, you know, that's that's a huge inflama- inflammation on the body because you've got high fever and temperature, you're very, very sick. And they did a lot of work into this like several years ago to see if it was actually true. So yeah. what this huge immunologist in, in the US... Yeah. Um, um, Russian guy and it's actually a way of stopping so much damage in the body right because by having a fever you don't want to eat you're taking away the fuel source and it's the inflammation still going because it's trying to reduce the infection mm. but it can't go overboard yeah. and actually physically damage your body yeah so that's why they do think there's some truth in that that's so super interesting. perhaps in the term in the frame of chronic inflammation yeah perhaps there could be something in it too, like with withholding food. Yeah. It kind of pulls the immune system back. But we just don't have a sound protocol that we know works yet. Exactly, and yeah. I think experimenting at home can be quite dangerous. Yeah. Because ultimately inflammation is protecting exactly, us. So yeah. if you <laughs> withdraw too much, then you get a lot of problems. And if you have a long term low carbohydrate diet, you can see that and it's it can start eating the mucus in your mm. guts you know your own bugs because there's no fuel source they need the carbohydrates so yeah. i think it doesn't need to be all or nothing yeah but it'd be really good to have some clinical protocols for different disease i totally states. see that and you know even people in the uh research looking at fasting mm-hmm. protocols are still waiting on the long-term research to figure out what sort of different protocols are relevant for different people what a protocol looks like is that you know a water fast for two or three days or is it just an uh, a shorter term fast like 16 8 or whatever i always recommend people just have uh, a rough eating window of anywhere between 10 and 12 hours so in reality that is having your breakfast at eight in the morning and then finishing your dinner by like seven or eight p.m yeah i think this is like it's a sensible framework it's something that you could sort of implement into your life and going back to the leaky gut thing Mm. it's it's reducing the time that you're eating so you're having less time where you have this postprandial endotoxemia yeah yeah postprandial endotoxemia (laughs) it gets me every time yeah (laughs) the leaky gut gut. yeah i know i think i think it's very important for people to be a lot more medically sound in terms of their understanding of these terms because leaky gut uh, you know if you type in leaky gut into google you just get everything yes you type in leaky gut into pubmed you probably won't get much no Um, exactly so using that kind of terminology is is great (laughs) (laughs) cool okay Let's do the rapid question <gasps> round. Right, let's do it. <laughs> uh, right. These are, uh, I mean, we've actually covered quite a few of these already. Ah, Sugar and inflammation good. is the first one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think we've, we've definitely talked about that, about how, you know, it can stoke the inflammatory fire. Sugar is very important as a, uh, mm. a fuel for mechanisms. Um, so it's not about removing all sugar. It's about making sure that you're choosing quality sugars in your mm-hmm. diet and limiting the ones from refined uh, sources. Anti-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory diets, are they worth it? Well, the studies, I think, that have shown they work in people with chronic diseases. Mm. So 
you only get a kind of shift in the disease when it's already somebody who's quite sick from what we know from the clinical studies i think that it's sensible for most of us to have an anti-inflammatory diet using something like the med diet as a guideline because it's it's not really excluding things exactly. it's bringing in the fiber we've talked about how important that is omega 3s which is part of the switch to resolving inflammation mm. you need to um, start pooling omega 3s instead of omega 6 to have this pro resolution response mm. um, which is rich in the med diet and it has all the colorful phytonutrients from you know fresh produce and all of that so yeah I'd say it's worth it. I think if you have a chronic disease, then definitely it could be an adjunct that would maybe make your day more bearable, yeah. make your disease symptoms more manageable. Do you see a future for anti-inflammatory diets and inflammatory disorders like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, yes. osteoarthritis, uh, psoriatic uh, yes, psoriasis? Yes, and I think the data is coming through. There's some conflicts and some things that don't add up. But again, I think a lot of that pertains to when you do human intervention studies, uh, you know, we're biologically very different, but yeah. also our microbiomes are really different. Mm. The, even recently, um, I think it was Tim Spector's group did yeah. a nice study on omega-3s and showing that if you didn't have certain gut bacteria, you, the omega-3, you couldn't utilize it in a certain way. Yeah. So when you see these huge trials with saying, oh, omega-3s don't actually do anything in the body, you know, it, it. You have to put it in the context of how the research was done, and remember yeah. that, you know, the microbiome is like our fingerprint. We're all so unique, and that's the interface between diet and disease and health. So. Absolutely, and you know, I think there's so much nuance to um, mm -hmm. our inter intervariability. Like I know my genomics is going to be distinct from yeah. a lot of other people's, yours yeah. for example, and my microbiota is going to be different as well. Yeah. So how I respond to a dietary intervention, yeah. a pharmaceutical, a supplement like omega-3 is yeah. going to be vastly different. And unfortunately, we just don't have the power no. to do yeah. this. Yeah, it studies. would be amazing like if we could. And I know they've done those studies with people wearing continuous glucose monitors. Yes. And they showed like really cool data, like two different people both eating a bowl of rice. And yes. one, you know, the insulin's going through the roof and the other person that's like... You know, Absolutely. Yeah. And so we, how we respond um, on a metabolic level to different foods varies. So when people are shouting about how low carb is amazing or you know high carb is amazing, it might not work for another person exactly. because you know where your starting point is, what your microbiome's like, what your metabolism's like is mm. going to be so different. I I've actually used uh, some of those CGMs, continuous glucose monitors, Have for some you? patients. Yeah, that I. I thought you were going to say for yourself. No, no, but I, <laughs> I, I probably. I probably will actually because they're, I yeah. mean, they're relatively cheap. Yeah. Um, they actually ran out, the, the producers of it ran out because I think so many people were self experimenting. <laughs> but I've actually done it with some patients who are pre diabetic, uh, right. or I suspect are pre diabetic from yeah. some of their, um, uh, their blood results. And honestly, what I would consider something that's like relatively good for yeah. someone might not actually be or wow. wasn't actually relevant, for, wasn't um, suitable for them. So uh, oats, for example, 
Uh, a lot of people find oats. I, I love oats. You know, yeah. I recommend it and still. I mean, but I'm for, Scottish. Yeah. So I'm all about the oats. <laughs> <laughs> Grew up on oats. Yeah, yeah. But for this particular person, um, it, it wasn't suitable at all. Wow. And you could just see the spike as soon as they had it. And like, you know, one, two hours afterwards, you just like see this maintained glucose yeah. response. Wow. Um, and when we mi mixed it around a bit and we yeah. actually still had some oats actually, yeah. but then we added uh, different nuts and seeds to it. Right. We changed the milk around uh, yeah. we we took the banana uh, you know took away the banana yeah. actually added some other low sugar fruit oh, massive difference that's fascinating um, yeah. I think that's really that to me that just screams like uh, the, the meal is the sum of its parts yes. you know we don't want to look at nutrients in isolation anymore because it's not, actually not very useful and like dietary patterns are much more helpful like totally. like what you're saying about sort of a time window of eating like patterns of eating and yeah. that's yeah and there's so many different things will, that will predict what that person's glucose response is yeah. going to be right like whether they were stressed at the time of yeah. eating or whether they'd actually had a full night's sleep the night before yeah. or what they actually ate the night before because yeah. that's going to have a affected you know what's exactly. in the garden and everything so yeah and, and you know what we've covered a lot of the other <laughs> questions about weight loss inflammation oh. intermittent fasting vampire blood have you heard about this young blood being oh, uh, yes. tra yeah <laughs> transfused that. yeah and how that's having a uh and uh what, I don't, what was they what do they call it an, an, an anti-aging effect Hmm. I mean, the to, ethics aside, yeah. <laughs> I'd have to look into the mechanism. Yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. I think there was something that came out in Cell. I'll have to forward yeah. it to you uh, about the potential mechanisms of this. But people are already seeing the monetary value, um, and they're spinning out companies where they're charging exorbitant amounts for young blood to be right. transfused and stuff. And I don't think they have the data to prove that it works. No. but certainly in mice they do. Um, okay. So when you transfuse use an old uh, aging mice yeah. a mouse uh, with uh, young blood from a young yeah. healthy mice that the health effects are actually and how um, long does it last uh, that's another good question because I think in mice it will be very different yeah. um, so I, I know I think they were looking at the end point of lifespan right. and, it, and it significantly yeah. improved their lifespan it's really hard to do that in humans isn't really it really <laughs> hard to do that yeah but I, I was damn thinking, us for living so long you know I, I'd rather have a, a microbiome from somebody who's young and that's fit. super because there's yeah. actually a lot of studies doing swaps with old and young microbiomes yeah. and as you mentioned earlier like the microbiome changes as we age yeah. and I was wondering if that could be upstream of the blood because lots of metabolites from the microbiome is going into the blood yeah. and that's like our own personalised pharmacy yeah. of, of stuff and maybe that's something that's in the young blood maybe you can get two for yeah, one exactly yeah <laughs> I know we should set up our own cl clinic doing <laughs> blood and poop transfusions <laughs> from young victims <laughs> anyone wants to volunteer <laughs> There you have it, another podcast with the wonderful Dr. Jenna. You can catch her on socials at Dr. J Mac Twitter and Dr. Underscore Jenna Underscore Machoki. All these are going to be on the show notes on Instagram as well. And check out her website, which has got some fantastic articles looking at everything from the perspective of immune health. It's drjennamachoki.com. Again, that's going to be on the show notes. If I was to summarize our conversation in a dietary way of life, it would be the Mediterranean diet. As we alluded to in our conversation, it is known to be anti-inflammatory. And now you have an understanding of what we mean by anti-inflammation. Inflammation isn't something that we need to radically remove. It is something that 
should be welcomed but in the context of our modern lifestyles we are usually out of balance if you have a copy of my book make sure you check out the page where i actually have a diagram looking at what is pro and what is anti-inflammatory in our modern world vegetables are key citrus have flavonones grapes have anthocyanins apples have procyanidins there are all lots of different types of chemicals that are anti-inflammatory they work in a multitude of different pathways including nf-kappa b and a whole bunch of other confusing long chemical names that you don't need to know about the easiest way to have an anti-inflammatory diet is getting a variety of different colored fruits and vegetables having quality fats things from nuts seeds and fish oils if you do eat fish is absolutely key to getting that nice balance of fats that have anti-inflammatory properties fiber 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 as i've always talked about before fiber is super important from the perspective of inflammation as well as lots of different perspectives when we're looking at different medical specialties so having fiber from legumes nuts again different sorts of bran and whole grains is a great way of improving your microbiota that have natural anti-inflammatory ability. Looking at your stress levels. Now we talked about this with Dr. Rangan on a previous podcast. Make sure you check that out again on the podcast page on the website. But looking at resetting your stress levels, particularly in the morning, I think is a very interesting thing to do from the perspective of inflammation. Whether it's using an alarm clock instead of your phone, whether it's a mantra in the morning, whether it's just simple deep breathing that you do for three minutes before you start your day, I do recommend a stress relieving, therefore anti-inflammatory activity in the morning to help start your day on the right note. Exposing yourself to nature, walking through pine trees, there's lots of different Japanese research looking at forest bathing, getting yourself, if it is at the weekends or even if you're walking through parks during the week, it's a fantastic way of again resetting your stress levels but also exposing yourself to those natural anti-inflammatory chemicals that you find in Greenland. You can find all this information in my new book, The Doctor's Kitchen Eat to Be Illness, is out to pre-order now on Amazon and check out the show notes where I've summarized our conversation and you have all the show notes there as well. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, give it a five-star review and share it with your friends. It really does help get the message out there and see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market